0: Well, good morning. As uh, Ben mentioned, I'm the Life Stage 3 pastor, and uh, it's really a privilege to be here this morning. God's really worked on me this week on what I'm going to share, and and in a lot of ways, I'm going to share with you what God's been teaching me me, rather than necessarily teaching you something out of God's Word. But some of you may know I used to be an officer in the Army. Um, I was a tanker, and I went to Ohio State. And for those of you football fans, yes, they did lose twice miserably. Field artillery, okay, great, I was a tanker, uh, but Ohio State, they were at least in the national championship twice, even though they got blown out, and, I, and it was a humbling day when I had to uh, admit to my wife that the SEC was the superior conference, and uh, she smiled greatly, uh, but the Big Ten will return. But when I was uh, in the Army, I went to Ohio State, I was RTC ROTC scholarship, I went to the Army, and I was a tanker, and... Uh, and Oh, I'm still an Ohio State fan. I'm faithful. Yeah, well, most of the people in here went to UT. UT, yeah, go Buckeyes. O-H-I-O. <laughs> not all of us. <laughs> not all of us. There we go. I'm sure there's some a m fans in here too, right? Whoops, a couple whoops. Anyways, hey, what I wanted to do at first, because this is important and uh, this is a, one of the few crowds that I can do this with that might actually appreciate this, is first of all, show you what a tank is and is not. I think we have a picture this anybody would say this is a tank no this is a tin can as tanker we affectionately call this bradley fighting vehicle a tin can it's made of aluminum Um, if you shoot the right round at it you just punch holes in it like swiss cheese it's a dangerous place to be this is a tank okay it's a little different this is another picture of a tank all right one more okay so just to make it clear this is not a tank And this is a tank. Okay. Now, when I was on tanks, uh, I came right out of the um, college and went in, and I was a second lieutenant. And uh, one of my favorite things to do when we're on tanks is gunnery. And I was a platoon leader, so I was a tank commander on one tank. He's the guy on on the upper left behind the 50-cal machine gun that's pointed in the air. Uh, I was also platoon leader over four tanks. That was my first job. And the the best thing to do when you're on tanks is to go to what's called gunnery, and it's basically target practice for tanks. And so you get to go down range and shoot these rounds that are about three feet tall and cost about fifteen hundred dollars each. And you just get to blow them down range and put holes in targets. It's fantastic. And the best engagement is what you call dual engagement, where you give a the gunner a fire command, and at the same time you're shooting your your fifty cal that's on top. That's a commander's weapon. And, Man, the 50 cal, I always called it my baby. I mean, you oil that thing right, and you set the headspace and timing. Oh, man, it's a beautiful thing. And then you, the guy, uh, you give a fire command, gunner, heat, PC, fire, and adjust, and the guy, boom, and then you're over here at the 50 cal, bop, 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 I mean, the, the whole turret's full of this, this uh, fragrant aroma of gunpowder, and, man, it's fantastic. Every time I smell gunpowder, I just start to, I don't know if salivate's the word, but vivid memories flash across my, my eyes. But I remember one gunnery. there's a fellow platoon leader that was there. And uh, it's really interesting. It's a, kind of a silly but serious story. At Fort Hood, Texas, which is where I was for four years. Some of you may be familiar with it down in central uh, Texas. It's, it's actually a whole big cattle reserve, which means that you're, you're doing gunnery, and uh, cattle will wander across in front of you. And of course, the temptation is, what would a cow look like if I put this big round <laughs> through it? Uh, but you get in trouble if you do that. And so what you have to do is, if you see the cattle downrange, it's kind of silly. You call the tower and you say, we see cattle downrange. And you stop, and then you have to uh, what's called clear your weapons, take all the rounds out, fully elevate them and put them on safe. And you call in, clear and elevate it, all's good. And then you send a Humvee and maybe some guys down there, and you herd off the cattle, which seems kind of silly. I mean, the, the whole gunnery exercise is waiting for you to herd these cattle off the range. But this one time, this young platoon leader, he, he and I were um, really about the same in length of time in the Army and, and being in this unit. He, uh, he was downrange, and they called and said, there's cattle downrange. So they stopped, cleared and elevated. He reported in cleared and elevated. And then uh, he dismounted his loader, uh, which is the guy you see on the right here um, on the tank, and uh, sent him to kind of herd off the cattle so you didn't shoot them. And then they sent a Humvee down. And of course, we are all listening because this is a big competition. Who is the best uh, at gunnery, and and it's a big deal. So we're all listening on the radio. We know the range is down, and then all of a sudden, all of us here at the same time and look at each other. It's an eight to ten round burst of 50 cal going down range. And I can still remember hearing the echo, because uh, everybody was just completely silent. We're like, what happened? Someone could be dead or injured or something because no rounds are supposed to be fired down range. And what I uh, what we found out is that the platoon leader had called in and said. Hey, I'm cleared um, and elevated. Everything's good. But, but he lied. He wasn't. He left the round uh, in the chamber of his 50 cal. He did not elevate it. He thought he had put it on safe only, thinking that was enough. It wouldn't be very long. And then when his loader was out in, right in front of the tank, he, uh, he leaned on the, it's like a butterfly with your thumbs, triggered. He leaned on the butterflies and fired an 8 to 10 round burst of 4-inch armor-piercing rounds right above the guy's head and, and just missed him. I mean, you can imagine what would have happened to that guy if it actually hit him. I mean, he, he'd be ob- obliterated. Unfortunately, the commander who was in the tower and running the range that we worked for, he kind of swept it all under the carpet because he really would have been in trouble kind of for how he failed to run a range safely. And uh, so he swept it under the carpet. And later on, I heard the platoon leader kind of talking about um, and laughing about what had happened. And I really took exception to that, and we had some words... Uh, I was a little younger than I am now, and uh, we almost came, came to blows in physical altercation. I just told him, I want you staying away from my platoon, because I didn't want him killing my guys. And a lot of times, you do live fire exercises all together, and I wanted him way far away. Now, what's the point of of telling this? One, it's, I have a group full of men, I get to talk about tanks, and I don't get to do that very often. Uh, the other is, is that this guy, this platoon leader, he was really a good platoon leader, a good officer in many ways. He looked good in uniform. Uh, He, he, uh, you know, dress and appearance is important in the military. He stayed fit. He was strong mentally and physically in many ways. Uh, He knew his tactics. He knew the tanks. He was technically competent. But the problem is he couldn't follow orders. The problem is is that he lacked integrity. The problem is is that he didn't take responsibility for his actions. And so, in my opinion, he was a subpar Army officer and I didn't want to have anything to do with him. Now, today, we're going to talk about Isaac. In many ways, Isaac, uh, you know, somewhat like this platoon leader, He he has some qualities that we're going to want to emulate, we're going to want to be like him, but he also has some qualities that we're not going to want to emulate. It's really a warning to us as men, and in fact, there's going to be some things that are going to make us squirm. And oh, by the way, it's a real clear picture in God's word that we're part of a spiritual battle. We're soldiers in God's army. And so we can say, okay, well, how how do we then live as soldiers in God's army, what we can learn from and what we can avoid when it comes to Isaac? Let me pray for us, and then I'm going to give us an overview of Isaac, and we'll jump right in. Dear Lord, thank you for the opportunity to um, open your word and be here as men. It always feels good to me. I'm sure these other guys are here for part of the same reason, just to be here as men and say we're committed to following you. So I pray you bless our time in God's word and, and seeking you, and you'd open our hearts uh, to learning more about you today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, today we're going to look at specific times in Isaac's life, as I mentioned, and then next week we're going to say, or that we want to emulate. Next week we're going to look at things that we want to avoid, and we're going to learn about how, how did Isaac even get there. And Isaac began his life, and on the back of your uh, handout, there's a kind of a timeline of Isaac's life. Isaac began his life as really a spiritual stud. I mean, he, he um, was fantastic. And then there was a moral and spiritual decline, and he ended up really as an old man that was spiritually bankrupt, and he, and he was miserable. Now, to set us up uh, to, to look at Isaac, let me run through some just real basic facts. And I'm going to run through them quickly just to kind of orient us to who Isaac is. Isaac was the son of Abraham and Sarah, the only son. Now, Abraham had another son called Ishmael through Sarah's maidservant, Hagar, but Sarah only had Isaac, so the only son of Abraham and Sarah together. He was also the young man who was offered as a sacrifice by his father, Abraham. He was the husband of one wife, Rebekah. He was the father of two sons, Jacob and Esau, the man who was tricked into giving his blessing to his younger son, Jacob, and he was the man who started life with a profound spiritual heritage, but ended life in spiritual <laughs> complacency. I had originally planned today to talk about kind of three key areas I see in Isaac's life that he was a godly man that we want to follow. But then as I studied this, God has really just been pounding on me. And we're going we're to focus in on, on one area today and one area only, and that's number two on your outline. And it's that I believe Isaac demonstrated a life, early in his life, of radical surrender. So Isaac displays a radical surrender to God in his early life that we can really learn from. So let me show you where I get that from. Open up your Bibles if you have them to Genesis chapter 22. We're going to start in verse one. So Genesis 22, verse one. And some of the, you who are familiar with the story. You'll see the uh, title there. It says, Abraham is tested. The story is really much about Abraham, and it's also about God's provision. But what we miss a lot of times is where in the world, what part did Isaac have to play in this story? So I'm going to read through this story and make some observations, and I want to show you why I believe Isaac was radically surrendered to God. Read along with me as I read out loud, starting in verse 1, chapter 22. Some time later, God tested Abraham, and he said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied, and God said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering in one of the mountains I will tell you about. Now how would you have responded if God told you to take your only son and, and go kill him? I don't know. I would have at least questioned God. I don't know about you. I would have looked for any way out of it. But what did Abraham do? Well, early the next morning, Abraham got up and saddled his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. He said to his servants, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship, and then we will come back to you. I think it's interesting that he's about to go kill his son. He says, I'm going to go worship. And then we, he had faith that Isaac was going to come back, even though God said to kill him. We will come back to you. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac, and he himself carried the fire and the knife as the two of them went on together. Now notice, Isaac is strong enough to put a load of wood on his back and go up a mountain. He didn't just go out and get a load of wood around the back in the shed and bring it in the house. He put a load of wood on his back and went up the mountain. So he's someplace between 15 and 20 years of age. It doesn't say specifically, but he's a capable, physically capable young man that we're talking about. So, verse 7 Isaac spoke up to his father and said, Father, yes, my son, Abraham replied. The fire and wood are here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? I believe Isaac was sincerely just confused and he asked an honest question. And he asked it of his father Abraham, whom he trusted. And just as an aside, I think it points to the fact for us, when we're confused, it's okay to ask God questions. And we're going to touch a little later on the heart behind, what our heart needs to be like when we're asking God questions, but it's okay to say, God, I'm confused. What's, what's, what's going on here? Because certainly they're both a little bit confused. Well, Abraham answered in verse 8, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. Notice here that Isaac doesn't say anything. There's silence at this point. So Isaac accepts Abraham's answer. He accepts that God's going to provide. So here's a man, here's a young man with a legacy from a dad who we, we learned in the last couple of weeks has really made some mistakes, but is also a man of faith. And Isaac also like his dad at this point I believe is a man of faith and he accepts the answer about God. He believes God is good and God will provide. Go on to verse 9. When they reached the place God had told him about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Now, do you think that Abraham that was any place from 115 or 120 years old had the ability to bind Isaac Wrap up his hands, tie a knot, hold him down if Isaac didn't want to. I mean, Isaac's the one who just carried the load of wood up the hill. Maybe he was tired. Maybe Abraham, you know, was a little older, a little, a little more crafty and knew some jujitsu or something. I don't know. And, and he was able to hold Isaac down and bind him up. I mean, I doubt it, but he may have. And then what about getting him on the altar? You have a full-grown, really young man, and maybe his arms are bound, maybe even his feet are bound. And how in the world did he get him on the altar if Isaac didn't want to get on there? Do you really think he could have got him on the altar? I don't know, maybe, but then he gets on the altar. What does he do then? Do, do you think he had to stay on the altar? No way. Isaac didn't have to, I believe, didn't allow, have to allow himself to be bound, didn't have to get on the altar, and he certainly didn't have to stay there. Look at verse 10. Then he, Abraham, reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But fortunately, the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. And the angel said, do not lay a hand on the boy. Do not lay a hand on the boy. I I think that what was happening here is that Isaac was displaying a radical surrender to God. He trusted God with his very life. And um, I I like visuals and... um, this is probably not like the knife that uh, <laughs> that uh, Abraham used, but I would imagine it had to be a pretty significant uh, knife uh, to, to slay his son with and do a sacrifice. So can you imagine you're laying there, you're choosing to lay still, your dad standing over you, probably teeth grit, probably sweating profusely, uh, Veins are bulging out of his neck. He's white-knuckled as he grips this thing and stands over him because he's doing something that he certainly doesn't want to do. And what does Isaac do? He looks up, sees his dad, I think, in this agony, holding his knife over him, trembling, and he still lays there. I think it displayed a life that was radically surrendered to God. I think radical surrender is also on display by the ultimate sacrifice, Jesus Christ. Many people say that the time with Isaac being sacrificed is a type of Christ, is what it's called. And you remember, uh, if you're here for the iChat series, we um, we discussed the garden, the prayers in the garden of Geth- Gethsemane. Maybe you remember that. And in the garden, Jesus, remember, it was the night he was betrayed by Judas. It was the night before he was crucified. And, and boy, isn't that poignant this week, since that would be... Kind of, you know, it would be Thursday night in the way that we do Easter, and uh, he goes to Jesus and he's praying and he says, "Lord, please take this cup from me, but not what I will, but Your will be done." Right? And then a second time he goes back, checks on his disciples. Jesus, take this cup. No, not my will, but Your will be done. And then a third time, the disciples are are asleep this time. He says, "Forget it. I'm not even going to wake them up and say anything." And goes back and says the same thing again. Not my will, but Your will be done. And and what struck me, and this is not original to me, a friend shared this with me, is that Jesus knew the scriptures, and he knew this story about Isaac, wouldn't you say? Agree with me? In that Isaac laid on the altar and was almost sacrificed? Can you almost hear Jesus saying in the broken human part of him, Lord, is there a, is there a ram in the thicket for me? Is there, is there another provision, another way? Is there any way that I can get out of this? But what did he say? No, not my will, but your will. Be done, and I I believe that if we're going to be radically surrendered to God, we have to be like Isaac, who didn't roll off the altar, who allowed himself to be bound, allowed to, to uh, his father to do something with him that just didn't make sense at all. And then what about Jesus? And I think he succinctly says what the, our hearts need to be if we're actually surrendered to God um, in a in a radical way is that's not my will, Lord, but Your will be done. Now I I think there's three critical questions that we need to ask ourselves when we consider this idea of surrendering to God like Isaac and like Jesus did. And here's the questions. The first one is is God good? Does he care for me? Does he love me? And here's another key part of it, is, does God want what is best for me? So is God good and does God want what is best for me? Second question is is this is God wise? Does he know better than I do the right choices for my life? That's a hard one, I think. Does God know what is best for me? So is God good? Does God want what is best for me? And then is God wise? Does he know what is best for me? And then the third one is, is God in charge? Is God in charge? Is he all-powerful? Another way to say it, is God able to bring about what is best for me? the next question that I want to answer as we work through this idea of radical surrender to God is the question of why don't we surrender? What, what hinders us from really being radically surrendered by God, like Abraham and like Jesus? And the first one, I think, relates to what we just talked about, is that we don't really believe that God is good and that he's wise and that he's in charge. Many of us carry wounds, uh, some of them are from our fathers, some of them are from other things. and our view of the world is kind of through tinted glasses because of the hurt that we carry. And so sometimes then it's hard to really see that God is actually good and that he's wise and that he cares about me. Other of us, others of us, I think, have intellectual obstacles that we have to overcome in order to really believe God is who he says he is. And we have to overcome, overcome those things. Because Who would want to surrender their lives, surrender control of their lives to a God who does not want what is best for them? Who would want to surrender their lives to a God who doesn't uh, know what is best for them? Who would want to surrender their lives to a God who is not able to bring about what is best for them? I know I wouldn't. I doubt you would either. The second reason that I believe that we struggle with surrendering to God is that we confuse who we are or who God is with who we are. Let me show you how I get that. Go to Acts 17 in your Bibles. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Acts. I went right by it. Acts 17. We're going to look at verse 24 through 26. All right, read along with me. Acts 17, verse 24. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by hands. Verse 25. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything, because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. From one man he made every nation of men, that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he determined the time set for them and the exact places where they should live. Whether we like it or not, whether we want to admit it or not, whether we struggle with it or not, God is in charge. He is all-powerful. He's the one that leads. He's the creator. And then we are the created. Isn't it obvious here? He gives all men life and breath and everything else. He set the exact times for us and the places where we should live. We follow. He leads and we follow. He's the creator. We're the created. I believe in our arrogance we get that confused. And we... we um, we just really get it messed up and we want to be in charge the passage here excuse me the quote here by gary thomas uh, is meaningful for me the biggest block to our surrender is not our appetites and wayward desires this last part is key but our addiction to running our own lives So, the question for you and me i think is are you addicted to running your own life i think i am many many times i think this is a fairly simple but difficult concept And that's this, is that we, in our arrogance or our hurt or whatever it is, place ourselves in charge of our lives. When we're the created, we're supposed to follow and God's in charge and we need to follow him. It's really pretty simple, but I think it's challenging. And also, if we really think through it in a sane moment, if we start to think about me being in charge of my life and my friends' lives lives, and maybe if I was in charge of all your lives, wouldn't you be scared? I would be. I'm not God. I don't need to be in charge, even though I put myself in that place regularly. I think we all do at times. But are we addicted to running our own lives? I think many of us are, especially we're in Texas where, I mean, it's pull yourself up by your bootstraps, work hard, man's man. I'll do it all by myself. We'll run our own life, thank you very much. And we can um, be duped into thinking that we're in charge and that we can handle it when we cannot. We cannot. Only God can. He's in charge. He's the one that leads. He's the creator. We follow him. Third reason that I believe that we don't surrender to God is that we don't see God at work in the mundane details of life. We don't. There's a book, uh, it's an older book, I I forget when it was written. Um, It was a couple centuries ago, Ken, but practicing the presence of God. And uh, do we practice the presence of God? I forget about them during the day. Maybe you do too. It <laughs> kind of brings to mind when I was first married, my wife would ask me, did, are, did you think about me all day? And I thought, well, <laughs> I thought about you some of the times during the day. And, uh, and, and she, that didn't sit right with her because she thought about me all the time. And, and I'm sure your wife was the same way. It's not because I'm special. But when you're first married, your wife, I mean, they, they just think about you constantly. They're so ex- excited to be married and they found their soulmate and, and all these things. And, and us guys, we, uh, we didn't. I think the same is true of God. We kind of forget He's even out there as we go through the day. But do we see God in, in, uh, in traffic? Do we see God when some jerk cuts us off? Do we see God when we get a flat tire? Do we see God when our kids or our wives need to really talk to us and need something from us in a time that's inconvenient? Do we see God in the disappointments and joys and details of life throughout the day, in conversations with people? I think we don't. If you're anything like me, you kind of forget. You just go about your day, and you miss that God is involved in all the mundane details of life, big ones and little ones. So that's why we don't surrender to God, I believe, so what happens when we don't surrender to God? So three reasons why we don't is we don't believe God is good, wise, and in charge. We confuse our place and our role with God's role, and then we just don't see God in the details. But what happens when we don't surrender to God? Well, I believe the Bible's real clear on that. We're not going to turn to a passage. Is that we're going to have a life that's uh, full of discontent. We're going to struggle. God is God. He is all-powerful. So if we want to be in charge when he's supposed to be in charge, we are in an unwinnable battle. So what are we going to do? We're going to be tired, and we're going to be in battle that we will never win. And what does it lead to? Discontentment, a life void of peace. I don't know about you, but I'd rather get it right. I like living where I feel content and peace-filled. I think a sure symptom, and this isn't an original to me, uh, to me, but a sure symptom of us not being surrendered to God is this idea of complaining. I don't know about you guys, but I can be a complainer. I call it constructive criticism when I'm in the, in the thick of it. But what it comes down to is I heart of complaining. And what does that really mean when I complain? It means that I'm saying, God, I know better than you in this instance. If you would have let me make the decision, it would have been a better decision because I'm smarter than you are. Boy, that sounds dangerous to me. There's one guy I've read that, that would say, well, that's blasphemy when we're complaining because that you're, we're saying that. But it's certainly certainly dangerous ground. Gary Thomas says again in the same book, I learned that faith isn't tested by how often God answers my prayers with a yes, but by my willingness to continue serving him and thanking him, even when I don't have a clue as to what he is doing. I don't know about you, but this is challenging for me. I know there's uh, many in this room. We, we we just started men on the knees yesterday that are struggling with job loss or job change or fear of job loss. Um, some I've heard of, you know, they lay off everybody around them, so now they're doing the job of three, and if they don't handle all that, they could get laid off too. So do we? are we grateful to God even when things don't make sense, or do we complain about it? This is hard stuff of life. It really, really is. Am I willing to serve and thank God even when what is going on in my life brings me great pain or suffering, or I'm completely confused? I think a mark of... A person surrender to God means that you are grateful in those times that are incredibly challenging. So instead of complaining, you're grateful. One of my favorite verses in the Bible, and it's kind of like a bullet point verse, and I like the bullet point verses, you know, let's just get straight, get straight to the heart of things, is First uh, Corinthians, or excuse me, First Thessalonians 5, I think it's uh, 14 through 16. Um, it says, Be joyful always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. We always ask, what's God's will for us? Uh, It's real clear in this passage. Be joyful, always pray continually, and and give thanks in all circumstances. And when I consider this verse in light of this idea of radical surrender, I think, wow, how do we give thanks in all circumstances unless I'm radically surrendered to God? It's really put a new spin on this passage to me that I memorized years ago and has been important for me. Okay, so what happens when we surrender control of our lives to God? It's pretty obvious in these verses, isn't it? What happens? Any, anybody's chatted out? What happens when we surrender control of our lives to God? What happens in our lives? What is that? Peace. Yeah, what else? What else happens? Joy. What else? Hope. Yeah. You know, at the beginning I talked about how we're in a spiritual battle. I love this idea of hope. Because guess what? We know who wins in the end. We know we are already on the winning side. We know who wins the battle. We have hope for eternity. Now, that does not mean that we're assured now of a life of ease, of a life of comfort, having the right job, having kids that turn out right, of having all the comfort and material possessions that we're used to in the United States. We're not assured of that. But we are assured of, I believe, if we radically surrender to God, a life of joy and peace and contentment. And I love that word, hope. God, when it's all said and done, is going to wipe out this earth, and we're going to have a new heaven and a new earth. It's going to be kind of like this earth, except only better and perfect, and Jesus is going to reside there. It's going to be a very real and physical place that we're going to enjoy a relationship with Jesus and with each other, everyone who's ever been a Christ follower for eternity. It's going to be fantastic. I believe that when we radically surrender our 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 lives to God, we have this hope. And what is our hope? It's hope that we have eternal life through Christ Jesus, his son, for eternity in a new heaven and new earth. It's a very real place. It's not a place of harps or an eternal worship service where you have to go in and hold up your hands and, and sway. Now, I could be part of it. I don't know. But it's going to be a very real place. We're going to enjoy God's creation. We're going to enjoy an intimate relationship with God. That's what a radically surrendered life Ends up being. I desire that. I want to be radically surrendered more than I am now. I want to grow in that. So, because I, I like, I, I like living with peace and joy, and hope and contentment in life, in a life that rises above the challenging circumstances that we face, especially now in our economy, uh, lots and lots of challenging circumstances. Today we looked at Isaac and we said, wow, what a fantastic example to follow. A guy who's radically surrendered to Christ. He's a type of Christ. We later see Jesus. Not my will, but your will be done, God. It needs to be the cry of our hearts. We could have looked at how, uh, in Genesis, it talks about how Isaac loved Rebecca. Wouldn't that be a a fantastic thing to emulate about Isaac, about how, how to love our wives and love those around us? We could have looked about how Isaac prayed for 20 years for his wife to conceive. Have you prayed 20 years for anything? I have never prayed for 20 years. That would be about half my life. I've never prayed for 20 years for any one thing. But Isaac did 20 years. We could learn from him in that. But what we're going to find out next week is we're going to look and say, what marked this man who was radically surrendered to God in his older age, what marked him in his spiritual complacency and his spiritual bankruptcy? What marked him? And then we're going to look at how in the world did he get there so we can avoid it ourselves. Let me pray for us and I look forward to seeing you next week. Lord, thank you for um, Isaac. Thank you for Jesus. The examples that they are to us and how we need to surrender our lives. And this week, this uh, Passion Week where we contemplate how Jesus died on the cross for our sins, I pray that we would all just be mindful of that. If there's anyone in this room that doesn't know you as our Savior, that that would become clear to them today and they'd want to move, us, uh, move forward in that. And I pray you would uh, help each one of us to follow Isaac's example and to be men that are radically surrendered to God in every aspect of our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.